Hello, everybody. Welcome to today's podcast uh, brought to you by the Class Education Political Education Committee. Uh, today, we will be talking about fascism, uh, one of the major topics of modern political history and certainly of the 20th century. And our purpose today is to approach fascism from a Marxist perspective. That is, how, how does Marxist theory help us understand modern history and um, its, its, its major forces and events. And just a note to beginning, uh, the material we're drawing on was part of a course that we put on in uh, 2022 as part of a series of courses we've been developing, trying to understand the modern world in historical materialist terms. Other topics we've approached include imperialism, uh, uh, heterodox economic theory, and if you are interested in following any of our courses, which are open to the general public, uh, please visit classunity.org and click the education tab. And you can see what our reading lists comprise and what our upcoming courses will be. Uh, so with that said, uh, let's get into it. I mean, I think, I think the topic itself to, to start with, we should acknowledge that we're primarily going to be discussing the history of Nazi Germany and World War II. And obviously these are topics that most people already have a, 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 a fairly well-developed understanding of and feelings towards. And so while we're not here to tell anyone, like we don't think anyone really needs to be told how they feel about the Nazis at this point, and we're not here to do that, um, but there is a common sense understanding of this history that we feel is lacking in many respects. And this may sound audacious. I mean, I think it's, it's perfectly reasonable to expect people to have the response that, you know, at this point, what more can really be said about World War II and the Nazi period? And so to start with, I think we need to distinguish what we're going to be saying from this sort of common sense understanding of what fascism is and how and why the Nazis came to power. And I think maybe one of the primary elements of this uh, common sense understanding of fascism is the idea that fascism is primarily a, a political catastrophe in the sense that fascism is what happens when the wrong people are able to seize control of government and the result is world wars and concentration camps and so on. And if only we had had more robust democratic institutions in Germany in the early 30s, none of this would have happened. And all of the death, all of the destruction, the, you know, the conflagration of Europe itself could have been avoided. And our position on this is that this does not account for the, um, the economic necessities that drove the Nazis into power. And in many ways, it's confusing the effect for the cause. And so what this means is that the Nazis, it, it's, it's not enough to say that it was through sheer force of political will that the Nazis came to power and caused the, the World, War, World War II. It's more accurate from our perspective to, to, to view Nazism itself as an effect of an underlying set of economic causes. 
And so our purpose today will be to try to make sense of the economic history of modern industrial capitalism that has uh, re that resulted in the rise of fascism and the the success of fascism as a political entity. Anything you guys would like to add in way of uh, just introducing the topic and maybe distinguishing from other prominent understandings of fascism? Some revisionist historians after um, the Second World War have argued that the origins of fascism fall into a kind of um, perversion of a third way beyond liberal capitalist or beyond socialist. And some argue that it is a perversion precisely of Marxist intellectual uh, of Marxist intellectuals. Um, I'm not you know, specific, specifically, it's George's Sorel that is brought up by the Israeli historian Zev Sternhill. We don't need to get into the details of that, but his uh, book, The Birth of Fascist Ideology, was incredibly uh, commented upon in a huge, hugely interesting um, analysis. But, um, but I still think it, it is very problematic because his argument is ultimately that ideologically fascism emerges in the 1890s in France from socialist syndicalism and Mussolini citing Sorel says this is my primary kind of praxeological or my primary mode of thinking about revolutionizing society so fascism therefore shifts the ground of interest for revolutionizing capitalism onto elites as opposed to on revolutionizing the mode of production and so um, fascism emerges as a perversion of Marxism, as a perversion of Marxist intellectuals. So that, I don't know if y'all are aware of that, but I find that a pretty interesting little side point. Yeah, perhaps we should say something about, you know, the common, uh, maybe not common, but sometimes you hear people say, well, national socialism, aren't they socialists? Then it's in the name. So how, how should we clarify our understanding of uh, that specifically? Well, I mean, I would just jump in and by saying that um, when we're about to, the text we're about to analyze with with Alfred Sunretel, he makes it very clear that um, the use of socialism by the Nazis was um, by no means a congruent with the conception of this term. I mean, you had prior socialist revolutions, such as like the Bavarian Socialist Revolution, which was actually one of the first successful socialist revolutions that occurred. And so you had a kind of milieu of worker agitations. At the turn of the century across Europe, you had something like in 1907, 600,000 strikes. But none of those strikes were capable of fully revolutionizing the capitalist mode of production. So there was a kind of... Uh, challenge internal to socialism that faced a kind of wall right and so uh one way of thinking about that is that national socialism does in fact emerge as a type of um parasite on social democracy and of course for communists and for even for son who we're going to talk about in a moment he was making it clear um as was trotsky and even stalin we don't need to get into the details there that social democracy was a kind of um, handmaiden to the birth of fascism. And this is where you get the notion out of Stalinism of, of social fascism, which I think actually in hindsight was a very problematic accusation. But nonetheless, there was a sense in which 
um, national socialism grew out of a perversion of the SPD and that because um, you had uh, the Communist Party of Germany at, at loggerheads with uh, the SPD, with the Social Democrats. So, you know, we should probably mention that schism because I think that contributed to it as well. Yeah, just to pick up there on a few things that I want to underline. Um, indeed, uh, if we just look at it historically as a development, a lot of this did come out of uh, uh, workers' movements, um, disgruntled and frustrated soldiers after the war uh, in large part, but also, you know, in 1870s and 90s, there were depressions and economic problems and all sorts of um, anti-establishment sentiments, um, all kinds of those problems. And and, um, you know, fascists used that, they, they co-opted labor movements basically because people were in favor of social programs and bending industry to the common purpose. Um, they could sort of, you know, corral those sentiments in a certain direction, especially because uh, I think when you look at the sentiments among organized labor at the time, there were, you know, the nationalist and the internationalist sentiments, and they weren't unified. And so a lot of Marxists, like, above all, like to say that, you know, social democracy failed when the First World War rolled around because they, the workers made the mistake of, you know, fighting for their masters against other workers instead of, you know, shooting, you know, they shot down their brothers for their masters instead of joining their brothers on the other side of the trench and shooting down the masters. I think it's it's more, I mean, if you want to be a good sort of uh, socially scientific Marxist and try to understand things in terms of explanations and causes, it'd be better to, to, to look at that not as a failure of the social democracy, but a failure of the Marxists who think that the working class made a mistake. The question is, why did it go that way? It needs to be explained. Um, what is clear is that the fascist movements, whether in Italy, you know, Mussolini was a socialist first. The critics are right about that. But he had the national sentiment and, and um, coming out of anarcho-syndicalism and so trade union movements and stuff, he knew how to corral that support um, in order to get national measures for national policies to make things happen. And one thing also I want to add is that, um, I mean, there was a wave that these people rode. We'll get into this maybe later more. Son Rezo makes a lot of it, but this is also, it's not his own thing. This is public information. They rode a wave of lower class support into power, then betrayed their own supporters, threw them under the bus. And then when big business and finance supported them, once they'd become acceptable, gotten into institutions, they sort of discarded their, you know, they threw away the ladder by which they got there. And there was a kind of opportunist careerism involved. And, um, one thing in particular I want to, I mean, in, in the German case, that was that was using the brown shirts, the Sturmabteilung, as a sort of, you know, they were lumping lower, lower sort of sub-proletarian people, using them violently in order to obtain power and then throwing them away and ultimately killing lots of them in the Night of the Long Knives until, you know, the sort of higher class groups like the SS and so forth and ultimately the military supported um, or introduced and then supported them. There's a paper by Germa Bell. He's at the University of Barcelona. You can find it if you Google it. It's called Against the Mainstream Nazi Privatization in the 1930s Germany. I just want to point to this because, you know, of the people who say, well, National Socialism, after all, was socialism. No, this is another case where they're co-opting things which already exist in order to corral that support for the policy changes they want. 
Um, in this paper, Germa Bell says, you know, um, Germany was the only country in the 1930s in the whole world is the first to do this to privatize public institutions, not just reprivatize things that had been taken into public ownership because of the 1929 Great Depression. They actually put things into private hands, which were previously public. And so we really need to understand the fascists in Germany as a kind of uh, crony capitalist opportunist bunch of pirates who couldn't even agree amongst themselves long enough to make anything work. Um, it was really pure opportunism. All right. So it sounds like to, uh, I think, to understand the history of fascism maybe a little more clearly, now is the time to focus on the history of capitalism, which is the broader context for this. And I think it may be, may be useful just to kind of um, zoom out a little bit and look at sort of the history of the uh, the development of industrial capitalism in the 19th century and the form that it took by the end of the 19th century specifically, which is what's known as monopoly capitalism. And as a period, you can date this perhaps to the late, you know, 1880s, 1890s, into the 20th century through the World War period. Um, so how, how, how can we... Uh, just summarize the essence of monopoly capitalism. What is monopoly capitalism as a force of history, as a, as a stage of history um, that emerged in the early 20th century? I, th I bring this up just to, um, I, I think, you know, just for, for people who aren't necessarily familiar with Marxist theory and how Marxist theory conceptualizes the history itself of capitalism, it's useful to see how capitalism is itself, it's a dynamic process. It's been growing at a constant rate for 200 years. And in growing in, in such a way, it's, it's underlying form changes. And so what, one of the things we found in our readings is that by understanding the sort of inner mechanics of, um, of advanced capitalism, of the monopoly stage of industrial capitalism, then we can start to understand sort of the causal mechanisms that we're talking about with regards to the emergence of fascism. And so this, this, this may be, I mean, for people who aren't overly familiar with economic theory, this may seem like intimidating terrain, but um, I think we, what we can hopefully offer is um, a, a, a easy to digest, but nonetheless informative and explanatory uh, account of um, how capitalism was developing through the 19th century into the 20th. Okay, so I'll give it a shot, but Andy, you jump in um, wherever to, uh, please. Um, so basically, I think you'd need to back up a second and, and think like, okay, around 1870, the kind of capitalism that Marx is describing in the manifesto and the earlier form, the kind of one we have in our mind of, you know, the, the hands-on tycoon who personally owns and manages everything. Um, there was a massive uh, depression and recession in 1870. And so the profit rate fell and a lot of capital was concentrated in a few hands. And one of the ways that that was dealt with was the rise of the joint stockholding company. Um, so you had what are called trusts, cartels, um, and that is monopoly. So the concentration and centralization of capital basically from 1870 until First World War broke out when you had a fight between contending global capitalist powers for the division of the world and how it would be administered. You had different kinds of capitalism even. 
there's the German kind of capitalism, which was uh, administered by finance, but finance fused with industry and it was long term. It was more industrially focused and it was obsessed with rationalization and efficiency. Um, it in the 1890s under um, Bismarck introduced a lot of socialist measures like Social Security and so forth in order, again, to steal the steam of a labor movement and to try to corral those forces in the direction they wanted to see it go. Contrasting to that's the Anglo model, where finance kind of stays separate and does its raids and piracy and so forth. It, it, it lends borrowed money instead of its own in order to finance industry, blah, blah. Basically, long story short, they come into a conflict in uh, World War One, and what comes out of it is even more concentration, right? So um, what happens when... What happens when um, when only a few uh, buyers and sellers exist in the market? Um, commodities cease to be sold according to their price of production, and they start to be sold according to whatever the market can bear, uh, is the way Veblen put it. So you have monopoly prices. Um, these people control the markets and so forth. And um, so what happens is production can become so efficient so efficient you get the cost per unit down really low so that it's cheaper to produce i don't know a thousand times as much than it is to produce just a little bit so the industrialists naturally want to produce as much steel as physically possible irrespective of whether the markets can absorb that whether there's a buyer with money on hand to buy it at a profitable rate they want to sell as much steel as as the laws of physics allow, but the market can't always absorb that. And so the question arises, how do you create artificial effective demand for a product for which there is no sort of spontaneous effective demand? And Sonrethel has a nice way of putting that. Basically, he says that the overall effect is that the economic autonomy of structures of production have become increasingly, have increasingly destroyed the market economy's capacity to regulate itself. So the plant economy overwhelms the market economy in terms of productivity. He says, if production is no longer able to obey the demands of the market, then it's necessary to try to subject the market to the demands of production. That's to say, if the market can't absorb all the products, then bend the market to fit whatever you need to sell. The times when a large company was closed down because it was bankrupt according to regulations of the free market have long since passed. Today, market regulations are manipulated instead, and all of this can under be, be understood under the banner of monopoly. That's the way he put it. And so when you get to that point, you have curated markets instead of free markets, and that's when wars start to be uh, waged out of economic necessity, because otherwise the steel monopolies will go bankrupt simply, which was the case in the interwar period. So one of the features you're describing is that as as capital becomes concentrated, it becomes necessary to plan the economy. And so this is one of the features that Marx was really predicting before it happened, was that the development of uh, industrial productive capability leads to the necessity for some manner of economic planning. And this is how, uh, you know, the big industrial trusts and cartels operated. They um, streamlined and uh, the production process such that it was um, as efficient as possible 
as you're describing, but as you're also describing, this leads to a, a split between the economic imperatives of production and the imperatives of the market. And so on the one hand, production demands a certain rate of, of, of output, a certain efficiency of output, but the market doesn't necessarily meet the demands of production itself. So we have a bifurcation of economic incentive um, within capitalism itself. Yeah, I just wanted to add like a little flavor to this to make it hopefully a little more tangible and it might help us kind of transition to the specific situation in Nazi Germany. Um, so, you know, one of the reasons why there's this compulsion to continuously produce more goods um, is tied to this concept Marx talked about called uh, the organic composition of capital. So uh, basically the concept is that over time, uh, the amount of labor used uh, or the amount of a cost of a good being derived based on the, uh, the amount of labor that was put into that producing that commodity uh, tends to go down over time. So, um, and that's a direct result of this monopolization process. So obviously that, you know, in the short term that works out well for the capitalists because they can uh, produce goods more cheaply, but obviously there's a, a competitive, um, you know, aspect to this where there's multiple competing monopoly interests. And so there's a race to the bottom. And so that's one aspect. And then the other is, uh, obviously we know that capitalism has boom and bust cycles. And so there's obviously periods of time where there isn't demand for your products. So the way you handle that when labor costs make up a big chunk of the cost of goods and services in earlier phase of capitalism is just to lay off workers. Um, because at the end of the day, who cares what happens to them? They need to take care of themselves. You lay them off, that helps resolve the contradiction a little bit. Um, but uh, when this organic composition of uh, capital changes to where the majority of your costs are fixed costs, um, you're in a real bind because um, as we'll talk about in a second, like when you have a factory um, and you've bought a bunch of equipment on loan, it's not like you can just get rid of that stuff. I mean, you've got it, whether you're using it to produce goods or services or not. That's why they're compelled to continuously produce more and more goods, even when there's no demand for it, because at the end of the day, you know, if you stop producing, that's even a bigger hit than if you just kept producing these goods, so. Right, because, um... We're talking about massive steelworks, chemical factories, and so forth, things which run constantly. And if you turn them off, they break. They don't, you can't, it's not like a light switch. It has to be on all the time. Once you invest in it, you're committed to it. And whatever finance you took to, whatever financing you took to get that is a sunk cost. So basically, we're talking about industrialists with, who are suffering from a sunk cost fallacy. And they can't, they can't give up because it means their political economic power and their hide. Um, just one thing, though, maybe to relate it back to more familiar language, what this is, is a way of, you know, another way of saying what Marx calls the forces of production and relations of production. Basically the productive forces are so immense that 
the relations of production, the market relations can't accommodate all of the surplus that's being produced. There is more surplus than can be profitably reinvested, um, we could say. And so there has to be a way to deal with it. Um, you might want to find a new place to invest it, but then, you know, it's like just passing the sort of passing the hot potato and somebody's going to get stuck with it. Ideally, you'd find a way to invest it so that it doesn't create any more surplus in need of investment. You can just produce purely for the profit of the of the industrial producer without recreating the problem. And that's why war is so interesting, because you produce a product which isn't going to demand further investment. It's going to go be destroyed. You make bullets and the only way to use them is to shoot them. And the only way to keep selling them is to keep using them, keep shooting them. And so the industrial situation in the interwar period under the bad financial conditions it was under a, forced a decision on the people in power, namely either you own up to the kind of economic planning that capitalism has already necessitated for itself through the course of the war and monopolization and you transition to socialism or you try to reboot capitalism by whatever means necessary. And that is, you know, Rosa Luxemburg, socialism or barbarism, that meant barbarism. So, so I, yeah. yeah. So, I, I mean, I think it's worth pointing out that there is, there's a, there's another, yet another irony to this. I mean, I think, you know, people, if you look at human history, human beings have always fought wars, you know, since we were in the trees, presumably over thing, over scarcity, over lack of resources and over control of territory. What we have since the, the advent of advanced industry is an impulsion to war, not from lack and not from need, but from overabundance. It's from the, the overabundance of productive capacity and the need to be able to profitably reinvest the surplus itself that um, necessitates war, essentially. And so to, to illustrate this a little more concretely, I think it's time maybe to get into the specifics. Uh, one specific, uh, the major, uh, the one most people think of when it comes to the crises of capitalism. So what, what is this description of monopoly capitalism? What happens when the, the entire global economy just shuts down and it just is annihilated, essentially, as happened in 1929? Yeah, I mean, this is this is really fascinating. I mean, I suppose the, the main problem is structural unemployment and the I mean, the, the kind of um, attendant political crisis that that produces, which calls for a strong arm or authoritarian response. In other words, the kind of standard um, liberal bourgeois class um, has a kind of um, necessary complicity with the capitalist class. But the legitimacy of their rule um, is thrown into question because of the crisis of capitalism. So in that scenario, I think you have a kind of, I don't know, you might call it a kind of political leadership crisis in which um, contesting powers will, will have a struggle, right? Um, one of the things that Sanreto talks about it, at least in the context of Germany, was the sense in which um, it was primarily the petite bourgeois and kind of um, the middle strata um, who experienced the depression and experienced um, the aftermath of World War I in ways which led them to uh, 
form more complicity with um, fascist powers, right? It was not so much the working class as such. I thought that that was a very significant point. Um, and, and, and also, frankly, very similar to what Marx talks about in the 18th Brumaire of uh, Louis Bonaparte, insofar as Bonapartism was its own solution to resolving the crisis of capitalism. And so you saw both in Germany, France, and elsewhere, the rise of a new type of political leader that was able to satiate the public relations crisis of capitalism in a moment of crisis. So you need a kind of leader uh, in the Bonapartist conception that's a third, third way, right? Sort of outside of the two capitalist parties. And so I suppose that fascism, in a sense, and I want to hear what others think, is like that in a, in a way, right? It, it is kind of coming from outside of the two dominant capitalist parties in whatever state it's occurring. But, um, you know, someone like Trotsky will make a point that um, Bonapartism and fascism are two different things entirely, right? Um, but I wonder what you all think about that, because that's how I would say that it's sort of primarily a response to unemployment and the crisis of unemployment. Um, but I'm curious what others think. Yeah, I think there's a lot to the comparison with the 18th Brumaire and um, that whole period. Um, I, I, I mean, as I understand Marx's argument, what he's basically describing in uh, eight, you know, the aftermath of 1848 is a situation in which the bourgeoisie, in order to uh, protect and maintain their economic interests, actually forfeit their political rights. So their political freedom to be represented in the assembly and so forth. Is, is sacrificed so that profits may continue. And I, 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 I mean, maybe I'm not the most historically literate person here, but I do think that there is definitely a um, parallel between those two events. And I think especially in terms of the, the class composition of uh, what was happening in Nazi Germany, which we can get to. So we've been dropping his name a bit. Um, or go ahead, Daniel. I was going to introduce Sunraithel, but we can do that next. Well, just to just to uh, answer your question, you know, what happens when monopoly capitalist economy implodes due to some kind of <clears throat> endogenously created crisis? I mean, the only thing really can save it if you're if you don't want to wait for markets to reboot uh, is government intervention. And so there, you know, government has to take on the role of the manager or the entrepreneur. And, and that's what happened in the interwar period. Governments who were previously sort of, you know, back when liberal meant laissez-faire capitalist, um, the liberals said, you know, get out of here. We're, you know, we're, we industrialists, we financiers, we've got it under control until it, until it imploded. And then of course the government needs to come in and, and help make things work through various means. And, um, and so basically they take on the role of management. Um, you know, I think here it's important the, the cliche sort of stereotypical Marxist picture of classes we need to sort of set to the side because it's just too crude. I mean, proletariat versus bourgeoisie can't grasp the situation then, and it probably can't grasp any situation. Um, even in the, the works where Marx seems to advance that, there's the lump in proletariat, there's the petty bourgeoisie, independent small business owners, uh, the underclass. Um, but above all, we need to distinguish the owner class, the absentee owning money capitalists called rentiers, which Marx talks about in Capital and Theories of Surplus Value, 
the managerial entrepreneurial class stratum in between, which Marx also talks about in Capital and Theories of Surplus Value. And then you have the manual laborers, um, petty bourgeoisie and the lump and proletariat. These are sort of off to the side. And so basically what happens is the absentee owners can't manage their companies anymore because they're too big. They need a managerial stratum. And when it implodes in economic crisis, the only institution with the power and the resources and the authority to get things back online is government. And that's what happened. And you had people like James Burnham, who, you know, I've got criticisms of James Burnham's view of managerialism, but to his credit, he was one of the first people to recognize that what was happening in Soviet Union, in the United States with FDR, so Bolshevism, New Deal, and Central European fascism was a wave of managerialism. Basically, the absentee owners needed a group of managers with absolute authority to come in and to get things back online. And that's what, you know, Son Rathel mentions that you were talking about, Daniel, and that's where I think you want to go, Eric. Yeah, so uh, we've been dropping the name Son Rathel. Um, it's probably, the, I mean, before I took this course, I was unfamiliar with his name. So I think it's it's maybe now a good time to introduce some of the authors that we've been reading. Um, where are we coming by these views? And so the, the, the first author that we're, we've been talking about a lot is a guy named Alfred Sonrathel. He's one of the sort of hidden gems of Marxist critical theory. Um, uh, yeah, he's a contemporary of, you know, like Adorno and Horkheimer and sort of the early Frankfurt scene, which he was uh, you know, vaguely associated with. Um, but he wrote a book in the early 40s on the economic or class structure of German fascism. And the perspective from which he writes this book is fairly singular, um, as far as I know, in the annals of Marxist theory. He has, a, he's a man on the inside in a way, and his story is fairly interesting. So um, uh, Andy, Daniel, would either of you, anyone like to just summarize uh, Son Rathel's background and how he came to his interpretation of uh, the rise of fascism in Germany? Well, well, basically, I mean, so he did a dissertation on, on Schumpeter in the 20s and couldn't find an academic job for personal reasons. Um, but he came from a pretty uh, bourgeois family, so he had friends in high places, got him a position in the Central Europe, what was called the Central European Economic Forum, which was a kind of think tank for German industry, which was obscure until... until um, the powers that be decided that they needed uh, authoritarian management to get capital back online. And then, you know, so basically he was in the sort of co-pilot seat of German capital as it made plans for Central Europe and rearmament and so forth. And he could see that happening. And he wrote a lot of manuscripts about this, not all of which were published. It only finally met the press after Adorno died. And um, then he got a lot of attention. But he was thinking about this even before Burnham, before Paul Sweezy, for all these people, he was by himself sort of coming up with this. And he coined this phrase called the social reconsolidation of capitalism. And by that, he meant that something like this. Um, in a capitalist economy, you can have explicit political rule in the public sphere only if you can uh, succeed at guaranteeing a stable rate of profit, rate of returns for the absentee owning you know, money capitalist investors which is to say if the economy goes to hell and you can't 
then you'll be ousted and replaced. That doesn't, so that's a necessary condition. It's not sufficient. That's not to say that, you know, you'll necessarily get it if, if you're a better manager, but, um, but if you can't maintain it, then you won't have power. And so the social Democrats fulfilled that, filled that role after World War I in Germany, where the turmoil set in, there was a revolution, the Kaiser, the, and the empire was done, the Republic started, and the Social Democrats did what he called a social reconsolidation of capitalism. What that meant was winning over popular support for the institutions of capitalism, above all the, the private ownership of capital by the absentee owning class. So that people said, you know what, it's bad, but it's not that bad, we can, we can save it, we can make it work. And so you get the unions and you get labor behind capital. And that's what the Social Democrats did. They threw the communists under the bus, the Spartacus. And I've got criticisms of Luxembourg and all the left comm stuff. But at any rate, it's clear the Social Democrats threw them under the bus. They got power. They were allowed to hold the steering wheel like a big boy. The, and then, and then the uh, industrialists and financiers said, OK, if you're going to rule this, you're going to do it for us. Do it right. Don't do any funny stuff. Well, that worked for a business cycle until things went to hell again. And then the Nazis effectively, the fascists displaced the social Democrats. They were entrusted with the task of socially reconsolidating capitalism, creating support by the workers initially for a kind of national rejuvenation of uh, native capitalism. So the capital is owned by Germans rather than the German capitalists going bankrupt, being forced out of the market and English or American capitalists or French capitalists coming in and buying everything up. No, we're going to, we're going to keep these old institutions and we're going to do it our way. That's basically the idea. What's interesting about this though, is that it can be generalized in a sense. Um, what was Reaganism, for example, but a social reconsolidation of American capitalism? I'm going out on a limb here a little bit, but just humor me. Um, so after, you know, you had the post-war boom, the happy heyday of post-war Keynesian uh, industry in America, union jobs, high wages, and suddenly the 70s set in, you have stagnation, you have inflation, you have unemployment, Carter is trying to hold together, you know, the patient is dying on the operating table. Then comes along this actor from, um, from California, and he says, you know, the problem isn't government. Uh, sorry, the solution isn't government. Government is the problem. And everyone goes, yeah. So, so in a weird way, by being anti-institution, he saved the institution. He gained popular support for a failing system in a way which did not require any fundamental change in the economic structure. So he recreated support for a failing system in a way which just got it over the next hurdle of the next business cycle. And so what's so interesting about Son Rathel is the way in which, you know, he's talking about fascism, but uh, the concepts, the concepts are still tracking the situation we've been living in. And the other one is about the permanently incorporated war economy or the, sorry, privately incorporated permanent war economy, but we'll get to that maybe in a bit. So can you say more about this institute that he worked for, the uh, Central European Economic Forum? Um, what was their role in Germany in the early 30s? Because we had, you know, 1929 crisis, the entire uh, global economy is in the sink. Um, and obviously this is catastrophic for monopoly capitalism. If you have a highly advanced um, industrial base that needs to produce to maintain a certain level of efficiency, but there's no market for your production, then the then you have to start getting creative. And so in a lot of ways, this is what this forum was about. It was in, 
it, it was a, a lobbying firm in many respects. It was the Chamber of Commerce um, arriving at um, political strategy um, for the sake of preserving the um, the profits of the German industrial economy. Um, yeah, well, I think you need to you need we need to consider that. Okay, so before before the Second World War, coming out of the first, going into the first. You had the Ottoman Empire, the Austrian Habsburg Empire, and then the German Empire. And these included a lot of territory, which subsequently was separated out when they fell apart after the First World War. And so um, you had a lot of regions which were formerly economically integrated, which are now politically disintegrated, the Balkans. Um, so Yugoslavia, Romania, all these areas, you know, Germany had a massive influence or ger the German, German speaking industry had a massive influence, you know, Hungary, uh, all throughout. Um, and so the question, I mean, you can imagine, let's say you had a steel plant, you're, you're, you're a Prussian industrialist, you have some capital investments somewhere in Eastern Europe. Um, it's, it's no different than today where, you know, you're going to create institutions to, to get access to the ear of the power holder to whisper things you know like protect our protect our investments i mean that's ultimately what foreign policy is about and so you had things you know like this where there's they're saying like you know, germany's a landlocked country which is the most or was the most industrially developed country on earth so it could produce heavy machinery for production but it's landlocked it doesn't have any natural access to raw materials it only has the ports in the north it needs access to other countries in order to do its stuff. And so this was absolutely necessary that if, so if all things were to remain the same, then there had to be expansion or reestablishment of control throughout Central Europe. And that's what it was. It was a tool for that, but we shouldn't confuse it. You know, the, the, the weekly brief of this institute was called the leader's letters, the Fuhrer brief. And, you know, there's a danger of hindsight projection, um, that had nothing to do with Hitler. That was just a German word for leader. Uh, and so this was just, you know, if there is such a thing, good old fashioned monopoly capitalist hegemony, and it, it had yet to take on the, the like evil anti-human shape that it would eventually take on. It was, it was initially just trying to protect its profits and investments, but it was willing to go to any lengths. And that's what was later, what, what later happened. Yeah, it's interesting side point. I like that. I mean, part of this text by Sunreitel, of course, is a bit of a memoir, right? And so as such, he'll make little comments which show that there was actually, um, at least at that kind of basic attitudinal level, a lot of tension and hostility between the capitalist class and the Nazis. But there was, but, but nonetheless, it was an unhappy marriage that had to proceed because it was tied to capitalist imperatives, which I think is a very... Um, useful point about what what the capitalist class will allow apropos uh, an overtaking of an authoritarian cartel that would come in or authoritarian party. Um, there's no contradiction there at all. And he made that quite um, obvious. And then obviously he also made the point that there were particular Nazi ideologues, um, but they predominantly came from these um, entrepreneurial middle strata and as Daniel mentions, this authoritarian managerialism, which I think is very, very interesting to reflect on for our present. Um, I guess the other thing with Sunreitel that interests me is this obvious distinction between um, what he calls the, um, the movement from um, 
relative to absolute surplus value that is involved with um, the fascist Nazi war economy. And the way that, in fact, there was a kind of regimentation of wages in eradication of socialist labor unions and an enforced authoritarian patriotism that kind of permitted this um, ultimately degradation of the working class and its decades of, of institution building. So there is a kind of um, eradication of the cultural institutions of the working class that fascism put forward. Um, and I was wondering actually if somebody could say something more because I'm aware of the distinction between absolute and relative surplus value. But Sun Rachel really, as far as I can see, he hinges his argument on this in a very structural way. And I was wondering if anybody would want to elucidate on that. Because I felt that that's like the core of his argument. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, um, as I understand these issues, the relative surplus value is uh, a function of the industrial development of capital. That as the fraction of fixed capital, of you know, capital that's invested in machinery and equipment compared to wages increases, then the amount of, of, uh, of the profit that has to be divided down to wages decreases. And this is a good thing for uh, the capitalists. They increase their rate of profit in doing this. But this, again, leads to the problems we're describing, where once the efficiency of production reaches a certain point, um, the rate of profit starts to uh, level off, starts to decline. And then when there's a market hiccup and there's no product for your super advanced, you know, uh, highly regimented, efficient production capacity, then where are your profits going to come from? You can't just, you know, continue with relative surplus value production because that's how you got to this problem in the first place. And so one of the dimensions of the immediate political um, function of fascism was to, uh, you know, slash wages and politically suppress the labor unions. So the absolute surplus value, which in Marx's analysis is sort of the primary form of surplus value extraction that then is gradually becomes relative surplus value. And so I think you're right, Daniel, that in Sun Rathel's argument, um, this kind of, you know, it's the negation of the negation of absolute, the return of absolute surplus value um, as a necessity just for the sake of uh, maintaining profit. And, uh, you know, I think just maybe to summarize some of the things that have been discussed, like, again, like the reason the Nazis were brought to power politically or allowed to come to power is not because capital was, you know, a bunch of seething right-wing anti-Semites who just really wanted to go to war and, you know, invade Czechoslovakia. These were, it's not, you know, it's not Lebensraum, as Hitler liked to say. The Lebensraum was necessitated by the needs for economic expansion, um, primarily. And so I, I think just to, to kind of summarize, like, what the, the function of the Central European um, Economic uh, Forum was, was to formulate the political interests of uh, the, the major industrial cartels. And given the conditions of the years following depression, those interests mandated that armament, rearmament for Germany and uh, colonial expansion in Central Europe were necessary 
for the continued function of, uh, of the continued profits of German industry. And I think that's an important thing here because I, it's, it's easy to forget that the ultimate function of fascism in Germany was to preserve profits, to make sure that companies didn't go bankrupt. Um, and Sonreithel calls this, you know, it's the coalition of the bankrupt under the swastika in order that they can preserve um, their, uh, their profits. Yeah, I'd like to just pick up on a few things there and underline that last thought first. Basically, the thought is that if we were in a situation where free markets reigned and were still compatible with the level of technological development that capitalism had yielded, the capitalists would have simply gone bankrupt, been displaced by other capitalists, and the market would have rebooted. Like Hoover, the American president Hoover, after the crash, said the problem is just that we have a bunch of economic rot. Let the markets do their work, purge the rot, and we'll be back online in no time. Of course, that doesn't work. You need government intervention to re-stimulate things, get things re-going if you want to keep capitalism. Um, but right, so the capitalists would have just been out of, out of business and displaced by someone else through competition, bankruptcy, and so forth. So the Nazis were a coalition of the bankrupt to preserve native ownership of capital. Why? Well, because foreign capitalists would have been the capitalists who would have swooped in above all, you know, French, American, um, and British because of the conditions after the first world war. One thing that's worth thinking about there. Um, one thing that's worth thinking about there is something that Michael Hudson talks about in his book, super imperialism, where he says that after the First World War, France and Germany uh, demanded reparations, sorry, France and England demanded reparations from Germany. They were ready to forgive them more or less because it was a catastrophe all around. But in the meantime, America's um, aid gifts to France and England were in fact, we'd been keeping books on them the whole time. And we said, you know, actually those weapons we gave you were on credit, now you have to pay us. And so France and England said, damn, okay, so now we're going to demand all this money from the Germans. And so dollars were being demanded from Germany to flow out towards France and Britain to go to America on the one hand. And on the other hand, American uh, industrialists were insisting that Germany buy American industrial products on the other hand. And so there was, in short, no inflow of dollars into Germany such that they could flow out to go to France and England and back to America. There was no circular flow of dollars such that reparations could be paid. We're trying to vacuum dollars out of both sides without letting any go in. And that paralyzed the economic situation. And, you know, people have said that uh, fascism in Central Europe was just European imperialist colonialism come home to roost. And that's, that's the way that it happened. And so either the local capitalists would have been expropriated or there would have been some political fight to keep capital in those hands. And that's what it was. And you had people like Fritz Thyssen. He wrote a book called I Paid Hitler, where he tried to buy his conscience by saying, you know, in the beginning, we all supported him to get our businesses back online. But he, you know, tried to exculpate himself by saying, I realized that this is wrong and it's no good. Um, one other thing, though, about absolute about absolute uh, and relative surplus value. I mean, that sounds kind of hard to understand. It's jargony. Basically, the story is just that, according to Marx, at least, and this is why I think Sonrathel is so cool, because he really uses Marx's concepts from capital to give an economic explanation. Um, in the beginning of capitalism, basically, employers would work the workers 
more than necessary in order to keep the workers alive that create an economic surplus. And the absolute sum of that surplus could be increased by increasing the amount of work, increasing the length of the working day. You increase the amount of output over the necessary goods to keep workers alive, you increase the surplus absolutely. Then as capitalism developed, technology became more sophisticated and you could increase your efficiency by innovating technologically, and then you cut your costs instead of increasing the absolute length of the working day. So if you cut your costs, your relative profit margin will increase as your costs shrink without making the workers work more. You could even have a shorter working day with more profit if the labor is really efficient. So the development of capitalism in Marx's story is from ruthless exploitation kind of stealing almost. And in the primitive accumulation in colonies, that's what it was. It was stealing. It was 100% profit. Starting from ruthless, brutal exploitation to a more refined, developed process of the production of surplus value profits through efficiency, maximization, technological innovation, and so forth. So from absolute to relative surplus value. The problem is that when production so radically exceeds the ability of markets to coordinate all of this and absorb the surplus, then it breaks down and you still need profits, even though the market won't work. That's what Sonrethel means when he says it's a regression back from relative to absolute surplus value. You're no longer profiting by becoming more efficient. And uh, rather, you're so efficient that you're producing more than anyone needs. You need to create fake demand. And so what you end up doing is going back to primitive accumulation. David Harvey calls it primitive accumulation by dispossession. You take other countries over and you steal their raw materials, or you force people to work in labor camps for free. So here also, I think it's valuable and worth thinking about all these terrible Nazi concepts are potentially, arguably mystified um, economic managerial techniques. So the living space, Lebensraum idea, that's sort of jargonized expansionary economic activity. Labor camps are free labor or or almost free. You don't have to pay a wage. I mean, one of the things that's important to note is that full employment was reached in the way even the mainstream economists understand full employment, which is to say, take the entire wage bill that capitalists are willing to give to labor and extend it not only to those who are currently employed, but extend the same amount and divide it up over everyone so that the employed get less, but everyone gets some, the same amount of costs, but more labor. And so you have full employment at very low costs and you increase productivity. That only makes the problem bigger and worse because then who's going to absorb it? And that's what necessitates the destruction of the products in order to make more products to make more profit. So I think, yeah, it's really interesting. It's sad that he doesn't get more attention because he's really using Marxian concepts to give an economic explanation, you know, on par with people like Keynes or Schumpeter, who he studied. Um, yeah, I think it's fairly scandalous that this book is out of print. I think it deserves to be much more widely known. Um, so let's return to uh, something, Daniel, you had already brought up, the class composition of fascism. And so you've mentioned that we're, we're beyond sort of the classical Marxist opposition between the proletariat who sell their labor power in exchange for a wage on the one hand, and the bourgeoisie who own the means of production and appropriate 
the uh, surplus. And there's a, as you've mentioned, there's a, a, an emergent mediator class between these of uh, managers and uh, sort of administrators, scientific administrators uh, te or technocrats um, governing the um, production process. So what, what do we, what do we need? To, how, how do we, um, where do the Nazis come into this? Like, how do the Nazis themselves fit into this class picture? Because they're not the owners of the means of production. Those are the industrialists and the, the financiers. And I mean, some of them are working. There were working class Nazis, but that's not how we don't understand Nazism as a working class movement. And so what, what do we need to say about the... Um, the class function of the managers and how that relates to uh, fascism. And I mean, I think like Son Ratho, he has a, the, a fairly evocative expression, like the difference between management and workers is the people who's at the top of the conveyor belt and who's at the bottom of it. Um, so so how, do, how does this function within Nazism? And, and furthermore, why, how does this function to reinforce the ultimate class nature of Nazism, which was to preserve profits of um, of the industrial class. Yeah, I mean, I can say the Sonreto's section on this is quite compelling because he shows that it was the experience of petit bourgeois, of small business owners, independent artisans, um, petty entrepreneurs, shopkeepers, um, who uh, during the inflation of the 1920s were wrecked uh, at the highest magnitude. And so they were devastated. So that kind of created an ideological opportunity for them to associate with an ultra reactionary ideology. Um, and also the fact that they were content to, to rely on parasitic finance, finance aristocracy ultimately, right? Um, so that they became the kind of um, stormtroopers or the kind of front line of, of the Nazi brown shirts in a certain sense. I mean, th there's, there's something to be said also about the disintegration of the trade union movement, of the socialist movement, which did probably lead um, a, a minority of working class people to align with the Nazis, but that was not the kind of primary class composition, uh, according to San Rachel at all. Um, so that, that I, found, I found interesting. Um, there's a uh, one aspect to it I wanted to mention that I was re-reviewing today that I thought was interesting. So, um, you know, the essay, the brown shirts, um, they were like largely a like a youth-led lower middle class um, movement that was part of the larger Nazi movement, and they they had a mass base, and a lot of the energy of the Nazi movement came from this group. Um, and as soon as Hitler came to power, there was immediately conflicts within the Nazis um, because there was a certain sense that a lot of the rhetoric that they were spewing about, um, you know, their anti-capitalist um, rhetoric, which was obviously, you know, wrapped up in hyper-nationalism and anti-Semitism, but there was like a certain kernel of authenticity about it that the Nazi leadership was really worried about 
with uh, brown shirts. And also just the fact that they were kind of an independent mass force that was outside of the state was very concerning to the army. So um, I just thought it was interesting that in, I believe it was 1933, they started to clean house and uh, uh, killed a lot of the um, DSA leadership and basically kind of this movement that initially got them into the power was the very group that they needed to kind of quell and subdue once they took power, so. Yes, I think it's important to note as you're both bringing out, um, when the Great Depression hit, there were basically two kinds, there were two kinds of down, of, of, of bad effects, let's say. I mean, if you're a major tycoon, that kind of depression can be good because it'll mean lots of other capitalist enterprises go under and you can buy them up at a cheap rate. And that's how capital concentrates and centralizes. Um, so it's actually not a loss for the, for the really big one, big actors, big players. But if you're a manual worker, that means plain unemployment. And if you're an intellectual worker, middle-class, let's say, um, then what happened was the inflation destroyed your savings. Um, because the way in which the German government tried to cope with the insane burden of reparations that was placed on them actually meant to crush them. I mean, that's an interesting episode. If you read Veblen and Keynes on that, Keynes says, this is so unfair. If you do this to them, you're going to make bad problems down the road. Veblen says, you sucker. That's the point. Like the point is to destroy them, right? The point is to take them over. And that's, and indeed bad things happen, but the way they tried to cope with the burden of, uh, Basically, the application of colonial imperialist techniques to them uh, created hyperinflation, and that destroyed the savings of the middle class, which is what made them such rabid reactionary fanatics. And so there's a cleft in the membership of these fascist organizations between the anti-capitalist uh, fascist man manual workers, basically, and the careerist uh, uh, opportunist uh types who will do or say anything that they need in order to get upward mobility because they're really just trying to find security. And, and if, if for that type, for that type, you don't want to own capital because then you're responsible in a way. But if you're just in management, you know, they go under no big deal. Um, so that's the distinction. And once they got into power, the, the, the uh, managerial section sort of, like I said, sold the manual workers that they used to get into power under the bus. And there's a great book about this. In fact, it's by Johann Chaputeau. It's called Free to Obey, How the Nazis Invented Modern Management. And he basically argues, like Sunraisal did, that, you know, you distinguish Nazism on the way to power and Nazism in power. And he says, fundamentally, the leadership was always managerial, but once it was in power, it was fundamentally managerial. And um, indeed, the, some of those leaders went on after the war to found managerial schools that were very influential. And um, so, in just, so to sum up, I mean, there's this older story of totalitarianism and authoritarianism in Europe and the idea that it's, you know, the sort of ignorant hordes, the masses, the you know, which is a kind of liberal elitist view, contempt of manual workers who are just, they're so irrational and desperate for an income that they'll do anything. Um, no, actually, the SS and the Gestapo were professional managerial class opportunist careerists who wanted to brutally manage. I mean, think about the language of human resources. 
you just do a cost benefit analysis. Is it better to feed the workers or is it better to force them into a camp? It was that sort of inhuman and, and it's pure, pure management. And so um, that is a totally different perspective than the one you might get from, from liberal interpretation of fascism as, you know, the unemployed hordes who need to be brought to heel. So maybe this is a good point to return to the topic of uh, Bonapartism, um, specifically in thinking about the relation between the industrial ownership class who, you know, they were as subject to the Nazi regime as everyone else, but nonetheless, the Nazi regime existed to protect their interests. So is this, is it, is it accurate to describe this in those terms of industry forfeiting its political liberty um, to be bullied around by, you know, the management types so that their position in the class structure is maintained. And I mean, the point to be made here is like this whole arrangement of, uh, you know, capital towards arms production and the, the need for authoritarian management only makes sense if you assume that production is for profit. As soon as production is no longer for profit, then, you know, the whole incentive of what do you, how do you reinvest your surplus? Well, you can invest it socially and then you'll have socialism. Um, so yeah, Daniel, do you have more thoughts on that? Maybe, maybe just, um, I mean, I think Bonapartism, maybe some people are, are going to be unfamiliar with what that means exactly. So maybe we should just clarify in simple historical terms, like what is Bonapartism and uh, what is it, what does it mean? Just to be clear, there are two Daniels. So every time you say Daniel, yeah, I know. I just assume that you... It might not be obvious to people listening. Yeah, yeah. I, I just assume that you telepathically know which one I'm talking about. Uh, but either Daniel is great. Like, go for it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a nice quote I could read about this. I think hits on the on the heart of the issue from Sanreto. Um, he says, the question of whether monopoly capitalism can assume a liberal social constitution depends on the existence of an, of a mechanism which automatically splits up the working class. A bourgeois regime interested in such a constitution must not only be parliamentarian, but must base itself on social democracy and preserve social democracy's principal socioeconomic achievements. But he says a bourgeois regime that destroys these achievements must sacrifice social democracy and parliamentarianism. It must create a substitute for social democracy and go the way of an authoritarian social order. So I think the difference there with Bonapartism is that Bonapartism is not necessarily of an authori social authoritarian framework or basis. Bonapartism is a logic that still relies on parliamentarian forms, albeit undemocratically, to live out and to um, fulfill capitalist imperatives, right? So you can have, so therefore, even though FDR was called a fascist by some, probably it's more accurate to call him a Bonapartist figure because a Bonapartist figure functions as a restorative figure, ultimately. But ultimately, the, the purview of their restoration, unlike the fascist, um, is still going to be within the parliamentary democratic system, right? Um, whereas the fascist is going to work outside of the parliamentary system of, of laws, legality, and legitimacy, right? Gramsci called um fascism hard bonapartism or caesarism where it's kind of that it's that break so i mean ultimately bonapartism is very close i think to fascism but um 
you know, in the traditional Marxist sense, we had an, ex you know, Bonaparte was obviously a concept that comes prior, comes before. So, um, what Mussolini and and Hitler represent is a a far extension from, I think, classical Bonapartism. So, why don't we ex uh, move on? And uh, we've 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 been characterizing the the Nazi period leading into World War II. What does this analysis have to teach us about the post-war era? Is there any applicability of this basic argument that the underlying economic demands of industrial capitalism require armament and perpetual warfare as a, uh, as a, as a way to absorb the surplus? How is this applicable for, you know, those of us in America? Is, is this, uh, you know... <laughs> We have a fairly conspicuous uh, history of military involvement all around the globe over the past 70 years. So um, is this the same logic that we're describing, this, the, the logic of uh, the needs of armed production as a means to absorb the surplus? Is this an adequate explanation of much of American policy? Well, I, I think one thought there, which sort of continues with the discussion of Bonapartism and, you know, points forward to the present uh, would, you know, um, so we should mention another Marxist economist who's very important and uh, who we read in the in the group, Mikhail Kaletsky. He uh, has an essay called Political Aspects of Full Employment. And his analysis, very similar to Son Rathel, but emphasizes different things that were developed independently as well. Um, he highlights a Bonapartist dimension uh, or way in which uh, fascism is like what happened with Louis Napoleon Bonaparte in the 19th century in Marx's analysis, and which is still relevant. I mean, basically, um, if the economy comes to depend so immensely upon um, subsidized industry, industry which could not exist were it not for the state sustaining it by creating artificial demand, uh, then you seem to be in a similar situation. So for instance, George Kennan famously said uh, sometime in the 1980s that if the Soviet Union, this is during the Cold War, if the Soviet Union were to spontaneously disappear, the American economy would implode because it depends on this. Another enemy would have to be found to justify the armament production because armaments are such an essential part of our economy. They prop it up. Indeed, that's where a lot of money enters into circulation in the economy is through government spending for for uh, defense contractors, goes to defense contractors, they pay their people and their costs, and then it circulates out from there. And so if that stopped, if that stopped, uh, there would be a massive contraction of the economy. So, so yeah, I mean, what Son Rezal is talking about, if we understand it in a specific way, he presents it as fascist economy and not sort of full picture of fascism with the cultural and social dimensions and the sort of hysterical, fanatical, anti-Semitic part. Y yes, the, the, econ the economic dimension does seem to continue with the, what C. Wright Mills called the privately incorporated permanent war economy, the economy which depends on defense spending in order to sustain itself. Um, and there, there are some more aspects of what Kaletsky says that are interesting and line up with Son Rathel and highlight other dimensions, but maybe Andy or Daniel want to jump in here. It, it strikes me that the um, post-war consumer economy um, 
is obviously qualitatively different than the um, the kind of manipulated absolute surplus value structure that existed in not the Nazi experience. But at the same time, um, we are in at least a post 1970s context in capitalism, experiencing um, a kind of crisis of growth, right? There's a kind of, there's that dimension. So I think what that means is what I would, add, what I, what I would like to pose to, to you all, and I, I don't have an answer to this, is is Sanreto's precise diagnosis apropos the um, crisis of value, crisis of, of surplus, right? In what way can we say, I mean, take, take um, post-2008, right? Clearly with, with what the Federal Reserve did with quantitative easing, you see something quite similar to a propping up of elements of the middle strata precisely by preserving the assets which incidentally fell very much generationally. Ultimately, it was the assets of the boomers, right? That were preserved and not cashed out in the crisis, which probably should have been in some sense, but that's not what happened. We saw something kind of similar in the Nazi period, but at the same time, we're not seeing the same, um, um, I don't know, like there's that structural macroeconomic argument, which I'm not sure has the same predictive applic application in a post-2008 um, finance economies such as ours, but I want to hear what others think about that. Um, I have a few thoughts. I don't know if I have definite opinions about this, but I feel like the situation does rhyme a little bit. Obviously, our economy is heavily supported by arms manufacturing, and there has been kind of a subtle austerity that we've gone through over the past couple decades um, that would kind of rhyme with the absolute surplus value. Um, I think the ways that the situation is not similar that I think are important is the U.S. is the world hegemon, and that includes um, our dollar hegemony. And so I do believe that the German situation was very different because um, essentially the allied powers were trying to uh, essentially bankrupt Germany so that they can eventually grab all their assets. Um, so it's very defensive posture that they had. Um, and then, you know, so as a consequence, I feel like maybe you could maybe make the argument that uh, we export fascism abroad <laughs> by selling our weapons. Um, I don't know if the chickens are going to come home to roost anytime soon, though. So that's my thoughts. Yeah, I mean, I, we, we certainly don't want to suggest that America is a fascist society, certainly not in the sense that Nazi Germany was. But I do think we have to, to look at sort of the overall strategy that the major powers were working towards. Like in, in broad terms, the world wars were fought over control of the global economy. England was, you know, the global superpower through the 19th century into the 20th, and Germany was the rising contender. So it's it's the Thucydides chap, 
where uh, a dominant power comes into conflict with the uh, rising neighbor power like Athens versus Sparta, only this time it's England versus Germany. And so what's at stake in the world wars for the Germans is control of the global economy. They wanted basically to force their way into Britain's position so that they could subordinate the global economy to German interests. Now, of course, the irony of this is that Europeans fighting over control of the global economy basically just destroyed the continent and power passed over to the new world, to America. And so essentially we're the inheritors of, um, of the world wars understood as fought for control of the global economy. And in that sense, our uh, military and economic motives are the same as Nazi Germany's, um, not in the same racialist language that's usually associated with that. But when you look at it as economic fascism, um, then I think, like as Andy said, there is a very real sense in which um, we are fulfilling the aims of Germany just in America instead, um, you know. So, yeah, I think... Uh, to that sense, I mean, it's. I don't know if we can um, call America a fascist society, certainly not internally the way Nazi Germany was. Um, but in terms of our global presence, I think that we in many ways embody what Nazi Germany was aspiring to in the sense that we are a global empire that has subordinated the resources and markets of the globe to our interests. Yeah, I think, so I want to jump in there and clarify something. So Unrathel speaks of the fascist economy as a uh, economy which is based on the production of destructive values, means of destruction instead of means of production or consumption, instead of the production of uh, values for social reproduction. And so he's talking about the fascist economy rather than fascism or fascist society. So um, when... I mean, many on the left, I think, would like to would be ready to say America is just fascist and we have a fascist society or something like that. And I think it's right to say no. Many times I've had discussions with people who say Trump's a fascist, Trumpism is fascism. And my instinct is if you cannot tell the difference between that and what happened in Central Europe, then you have a serious uh, conceptual problem. Uh, so it's not the same, but there are similarities. And I think if we restrict things to fascist economy, then we can say, yes, that is a that is a similarity, namely an economy which is based on the government deficit spending, propping up a market system of ownership and rents for absentee owning, you know, trusts, corporations, capitalists, which otherwise would be broken and scattered to the winds of laissez-faire. Um, so, you know, Franklin Delano Roosevelt's definition of fascism is when the state is run by the private sector for the private sector. And, and that's just that's just the way it's been since monopolism came up. And so if we're going to talk about fascist economy, I think we'd say yes. But if we're going to say fascism, the whole sort of buffet of nasty, sick, perverse stuff, then then maybe not. Although I'm sure there are people out there who would say yes. But the second thing I want to say is, so what that means is we are constantly at war, constantly starting color revolutions in other countries. And I shouldn't even say we. It's it's uh, it's an it's an own it's a class of owner oligarchs who use the state as though it were their private managerial apparatus to protect the returns on their investments. Um, constant color revolutions wherever we don't like a government, whether it's in South America or the Middle East or or in Eastern Europe or in China, 
perhaps. Um, that that is that is very similar. The second thing I want to say is that um, it's very interesting. The 2008 global financial crisis, Daniel, the example you mentioned, because Obama's campaign, the first one, would be a perfect match for Son Rathel's concept of social reconsolidation of capitalism. Things are absolutely in the shitter in Bush's second term. Everyone is feeling the pain. He's still trying to sell the war on terror. No one believes in this stuff. No one. It's dark. It's just people are ready to roll over and die. And then comes the prophet selling hope. And everyone's like, yes, we don't even know what we believe in. We just want change. And everyone's behind it. And it turns out what you said amen to was just sort of sanitized version of the same, right? So people who shouldn't have gotten loans, couldn't pay them, lost their houses, the banks got the houses. And then when no one could buy the houses, the banks went under and the state propped up the banks. That's what you voted for. That is social reconsolidation of capitalism at a moment when things should have changed hands too big to fail. I mean, that is what basically Sonrezo is talking about. Um, so the third thing I want to mention there is the way that Koletsky brings this out. So Koletsky says, the fascist system starts from the overcoming of unemployment, develops into an armament economy of scarcity, ultimately breaks the unions and subordinates them to the purposes, and ends inevitably in war. And so what's so interesting about Koletsky's argument, which again sort of plays on the, picks up on the Bonapartist thing, is the way in which he, he highlights that there's a, there's a, there's a coalition of industrialists and landlords and financiers. Um, and the way they interact with labor is what he highlights, namely, so full employment is great for workers. So if everyone's employed at a wage which can sustain an average life, um, that's great for workers and that's great for industrial capitalists. And even if you just stay at full employment, it's more profitable all around. The problem is, if you exceed capacity, if you go beyond and you produce beyond what the markets can absorb, then you might hit inflation or you might trigger inflation once you've gone beyond full capacity and inflation eats away at the assets of the financial assets of rentiers. And it hurts people on fixed income like landlords, because for instance, if you pay the same rent, but the money's worth less, they're getting less for it. So, Koletsky's point is that there will be a coalition between industrialists who just want political control over labor so that workers can't unionize and, you know, demand something like profit sharing in like they had in Scandinavia. They'll have a coalition with, they would be better off under full employment if they could stoop to, to work with workers, uh, but, they, but they won't, they never will. They make a coalition with financiers and landlords. They accept lower profits in order to keep political control. And so Koletsky's point is kind of like the, the part about Bonapartism, where you have the ruling class which sacrifices its political control in order to keep its right to appropriate profits, which is also Son Rathel's story about the German capitalist class and Nazism. They gave up their right to control their assets in exchange for the right to keep the same rate of profit coming back in a market in which they should have been bankrupt. And so um, Koletsky also is interesting there. And he extends that into the 60s. And he talks about Vietnam, the war spending in, in, for, you know, American arms industries as a sort of continuation of that. He, he explicitly does that, but Son Rathel does a bit too. The final thing I want to say is that it is important to recognize the differences between the sort of 
the U.S. global hegemony and the fascist system in Central Europe. And I would agree, Andy, that um, the situation with the U.S. global hegemony in the in the permanent war economy does rest on the dollar. So we issue the currency um, in which people buy petroleum, unless de-dollarization happens, people use the dollar as the global reserve currency. So dollar surpluses are exchanged for bonds. People all over the world hold their financial assets in bonds. And so that can prop up the military deficit spending in a way which wasn't true for Central European fascists. They had to resort to absolute surplus value production, labor camps, and taking over countries. Um, because the United States basically gets other countries to pay to be dominated by the U.S. through deficit spending. They accept our dollars and then use those dollars to buy bonds. They're basically giving us the stuff and we get and they just get IOUs. Because of that difference, the dynamics are different. The German situation necessitated really permanent war, 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 uh, whereas now uh, things are just a sort of permanent cold war, security conflicts, border problems, and lots of arms sales. So it's more of a cold war than a permanent hot war. And it's important to keep that difference in mind because we don't want to be, you know, too, uh, how do I say, hyperbolic, theatrical about this. There are real differences. Agreed. And uh, hopefully in the future, we will have a podcast addressing those topics, such as the nature of the contemporary debt economy. Um, so I suppose in, we're coming to a close and maybe just uh, for the sake of uh, uh, coming to an end, we should just try to encapsulate our argument. What is fascism? What is a fascistic economy? And uh, so just to begin, I mean, I, just to summarize the argument, a, a large uh, dimension of this is the need of capitalism to preserve the rights of the ruling class to extract profit through, in spite of the crises that emerge from industrial production. And the most direct way to do that, that they found to keep heavy industry running in spite of economic dis difficulties is armament production. So armament production becomes the means to profitably reinvest the surpluses of capitalism so that profit can be maintained at the expense of the working class. And so, I mean, this kind of gets back to, um, we didn't mention Dimitrov too much, but, you know, his whole characteristic of fascism as like a terroristic domination of the working class by the ruling class. And, you know, in many respects, that's perfectly accurate, certainly in terms of what the concrete results of these policies were, the predictable results. I mean, this was a policy of war, of armament, for the sake of military expansion, uh, for the sake of war. And so war becomes a necessity in the 1930s, at least. It became a necessity of the dominant economic powers. And it not only saved Nazi Germany from the depression, at least until the war really started and they were bombed back to the Stone Age, it saved the United States from the depression. It was only the war that brought us out of, you know, the 10 year slump. And so in the historical context of Nazism, while it's, of course, the Nazis were horrible people, of course, they were evil and inhumane and all of these things. But that is not an adequate explanation of how they came to power. And it's not an adequate explanation of why the war happened. 
And our case, just to be, uh, just to sum it up, is that the war was an economic necessity of monopoly capitalism and its inability to deal with um, the crisis of the Great Depression. Any other closing thoughts? Yeah, I, I, I would give a final thought and then leave it to, to you guys to wrap it up. Um, I just want to say, so I think um, we, I think one thing that's important is to not throw this word around too loosely. Fascism mm. is, was, a, was a fundamentally historically unique phenomenon in the historical development of the economies, the nations, of all these different things that happened. And to, to expect that the same thing would happen again is crazy or, I don't know, sort of foolish. Um, and to use the word as though the same thing were happening as before just seems to be based on a mistake. What, as we've said, though, there was a dimension of it, the fascist economy, that concept still seems to have some traction because it's far more specific. It's basically just a privately incorporated permanent war economy. Um, that still is going on. And it's not everyone that's doing it. It's not every country that has bases all over the world. It's not every country whose currency, which it creates, prints free of cost, is used by every other country, which is invaded if they try to stop using it. Um, so in a specific sense, it applies. But sort of mid-range, I would say, if you want to have a workable concept of fascism, which tries to account for some of the other cultural stuff, but isn't the sort of full version, which is, I think, historically unique, the one thing I would point to is the managerialism. And what I would say is that when you have an economic situation which causes downward mobility for the manager, professional managerial stratum, a group of people who are taught from day one to be upwardly mobile because that is their conception of freedom. When they're confronted with a hard fact of downward mobility, they'll do anything to prevent that from happening because their entire existence is invested in that self-conception. They'll cut each other's throats in the competition. They'll punch down. They'll do anything that they need to do. And that is a broader historical phenomenon than the, than the full version in the 30s and interwar period. It, it happens with the business cycle. It happens with every long wave. There's a middle class. I mean, throughout human history, there's been the clerical class. There have always been intermediates between the owners and the toilers, the administrators. And when they're faced with downward mobility, they'll fight in the way which is unique to them. Things like um, extrajudicial, you know, punishments, this sort of craze about cancellation and stuff like this. This is a professional managerial lynching. How do you get rid of someone around official means that you want to who's your peer? Um, well, you could do it that way. And in the hysteria in leftist politics since 2016, when it became really clear that hope wasn't coming through and that the bailouts um, for the banks weren't going to do people who went into debt to get a college education, the promised credential, the entry to middle-class existence wasn't coming through. Or when Biden's promises to forgive student loan debt dry up, um, you're going to have sort of angry outbursts of middle-class rage. And then they'll do weird stuff to like, you know, sort of priestly caste style manipulate people and do weird things to, to stay afloat, which on the one hand is kind of understandable because every individual struggles to survive but in the in the aggregate level you get weird politics and i think that that's what we're seeing 
as the Bernie moment proceeds further and further into the rearview mirror. Yeah, I mean, I would I would say there's there's um, something we mentioned early on, which interests me a lot, is um, what is the, you know, are there kind of a common set of characteristics of this precise petit bourgeois um, phenomenon that appear within culture, ideology, art, literature, and so on. And so there's actually been many um, studies of the way that fascism in Central Europe um, adopted things like social Darwinism, things like vitalism, um, anti-enlightenment principles, anti-rationality principles. Um, but in a historical materialist sense, they did that, right, um, as a confrontation with the disillusion of their mobility, of their class status, right? Which I found, which I found like an interesting argument. You find this in Lukács in his book, The Destruction of Reason, which is about um, the intellectual genealogy of um, how fascism came about. We, have, we didn't discuss that today, but I think it's worth it's worth mentioning that because if you, whenever you see moments of crisis, petit bourgeois intellectual worldviews are also going to become highly irrational. And I think that we are definitely dealing with that. So there are kind of like concrete effects in that domain that interest me. I think the other thing that interests me here is the ideological point that um, Koleski makes in this notion of armaments economy um, as a way to turn the broad masses against um, public spending or against egalitarian social policies, right? So war the war economy comes a way to reroute um, what would otherwise be egalitarian impulses amongst the masses. Um, and that, that serves as a kind of dark rationale for that activity, but on behalf of the state. And this is so uh, pertinent in my view, given that, you know, we saw a wave of the squad supported by DSA come into power and vote each time for the continuation of the war of the current war economy. So, you know, this, this, from a socialist perspective, should never be accepted at, on any on any basis. To me, to me, this is this is um, this is tragic kind of outcome of of contemporary bourgeois politics that we're seeing this kind of continuation, even of so called socialists, to support the war economy. I think it's terrible. So that that's one thing that came up, and I definitely agree. Finally, that the 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 loose way that we use this term fascism harm socialist politics today i will say in my assessment in the sense that um what it becomes is a is a way to penalize um deviations from liberal political norms and you can just call that fascist when in reality i think you know we need to um not this is the value of this conversation is to not reduce fascism to an attitude to a disposition or to a way of talking right that's highly limited and frankly it is repressive so you know this is sort of shining a light on a completely different way of understanding the phenomenon um whether sunrachel's framework fits perfectly today maybe it doesn't i think daniel's right that the, the fascist economy is really valuable but a lot more research can go into that too last point i would make is uh, another aspect to highlight i I do feel like a a big motivator behind a fascist economy is when capitalism is in crisis and the free market is not able to uh, help 
uh, the bourgeoisie realize profits anymore. And so they need to resort to some uh, highly centralized authority to realize those profits uh, through state spending, which uh, in the German context was armament production. Um, so that's, I think it's just important to highlight that, you know, as capitalism develops, it starts to, uh, the original forces that unleash technological progress uh, start to eat away at itself. And um, the, the free market system that initially um, brought it to a certain point of development is the very forces that start to undermine it, so. All right. Well, thank you everybody for listening, and I hope you'll uh, we'll we'll be continuing this discussion on uh, various other topics, including imperialism, uh, the incurrent nature of dollar hegemony, and also uh, an intense read through of all three volumes of Marx's Capital. That if you are viewing this before September tenth, two thousand twenty-three, please join us. It starts then, uh, and. Uh, that's about it. So thank you very much. Thanks, everybody. Mm -hmm.